back to another episode of Issue by Issue Crisis, a DC Comics completionist podcast. The only podcast that I can think of that's going through the history of DC Comics from Crisis on Infinite Earths number one, an issue at a time, slowly but surely making headway into the future. Uh, I'm your host, Nick Byers, as always, as usual, as will always be. And uh, this week's episode of Issue by Issue Crisis is, I think, pretty cool. Um, we, we got some we got some Earth 2 action. We've got some New Teen Titans origin story. Uh, we've got a big uh, green plant monster. Hmm? Because this week we will be covering issues uh, Infinity Incorporated number 13, New Teen Titans number 7, Saga of the Swamp Thing number 35. So let's get into it. No real world history this episode because we covered it all last episode of Crisis uh, because all of these issues also come out on January 17th, 1985. Uh, So let's get into the first issue, Infinity Incorporated number 13. Now, I didn't know a lot about Infinity Incorporated. All I knew about Infinity Incorporated was I think that they are kind of a little bit in Young Justice, the Young Justice cartoon. Um, I think that's the Lex Luthor ran Infinity Incorporated, and I could be just pulling that out of nowhere. But I vaguely remember a plot line in some DC Comics cartoon involving Infinity Incorporated. I think it's Young Justice, maybe one of the, maybe like the third season or the fourth one. I'm not sure. But Infinity Incorporated is the... Um, children of the Justice Society of America, members like, um, well, this is all Earth 2, so Earth 2's version of Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor, Alan Scott, the Earth 2 Green Lantern, Al Pratt, the uh, Earth 2 Adam, a relative or a, a connection of his, uh, Carter Hall and Shiera Saunders of, of Earth 2, so Hawkman and Hawkwoman, their children, all, all sorts of stuff, uh, and they form a superhero fighting group uh, to fight crime just like their parents because they were denied entry into the Justice Society of America probably for being too young I would assume because it's all a bunch of old people who were you know born in the early part of the 1900s but through some sort of magic are still very young that's all that's an entire plot line in Justice Society of America so uh, but let's get into it uh, like I said this issue was released January 17th 1985 cover date April 1985. Now we have uh, some debuts. Uh, Infinity Incorporated, of course, uh, in debuting on the podcast, not to the issue. Obviously, if Infinity Incorporated didn't debut until its 13th issue, what is the first 12 issues about? Uh, But the the team of Infinity Incorporated uh, debuted in All-Star Squadron number 25, June 23rd, 1983, so relatively new. They they debuted, and then I think they almost immediately got their own series. I think that was it was a backdoor pilot of sorts. Uh, we have Fury, who is uh, Hippolyta Lyta Trevor. She is the daughter of Earth 2 Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor, and she debuted originally in Wonder Woman number 300 on November 4th, 1982, so while a relatively young character, but... Uh, one of the one of the oldest ones in this issue, in terms of how long she's been around. We have Jade, uh, otherwise known as Jennifer Lynn Hayden. Um, 
she suspects that she is the daughter of Alan Scott. Uh, we'll later find out that that is true. Uh, and she debuted in All-Star Squadron number 25, June 23rd, 1983. Just like the team. Uh, we have Nuclon, who is Albert Julian Rothstein, and he is the godson of Al Pratt, the Earth 2 Adam. He also debuted in All-Star Squadron number 25. And fi- not finally, uh, final hero we have is Silver Scarab, Hector Hall, who is the son of the Earth 2 Carter Hall and Shiera Saunders. And he also debuted in All-Star Squadron number 25. Now, finally, we have the final debut uh, to the podcast, and that is Thorn, and she is a Flash and Justice Justice Society villain, and she first appeared in Flash Comics number 89 in November 1947. So she is very, very old, but not a very, very prominent villain. Uh, She appears a grand total of 22 times throughout her entire uh, life as a character. Uh, so not not a big uh, villain, but somewhat recurring villain uh, to the Justice Society and to Flash. Now let's get into some of the background on this issue with the production team. Uh, we have writer Roy Thomas, plotter Danette Thomas, penciler Don Newton, inker Joseph Rubenstein, or Rubenstein, depending, uh, letterer John Clark, colorist Adrian Roy Orwell, if he's French-Canadian or French, uh, and colorist, uh, as well, Anthony Tallinn. Uh, so now, let's get into the issue. And first, we'll start with the cover, which you can see on our Instagram. Uh, either the uh, the day this comes out, or depending, I do it one one at a time throughout the, the week. So, you know, this is the first issue, so that'll be on Friday uh, after this uh, episode is posted. So, we have the villain Thorn, and she is standing in the middle of uh, four of the Infinitors, which is what they're called. Um, like, Legionnaires are members of the Legion. These are Infinity Incorporated members, so they're Infinitors. Uh, we have Nuclon and Silver Scarab and uh, Jade all sort of wrapped up in vines uh, uh, on t- trees, thorny, thorny vines. That's Thorn's whole thing. She can control plant life. Uh, very similar to Poison Ivy, but uh, different. And then we have Lyta, and she's coming in in a sort of, like, attack position. And uh, it says at the bottom, a thorn grows in paradise. So they're going to paradise, but there's a thorn, which is which is not good. Uh, you know, hurts. They're really pokey. Um, we then cut to the beginning of the comic. And it is four of the Infinitors, Silver Scarab, uh, Fury, Jade, and Nuclon riding in what must be their sort of travel, their means of conveyance for the team. And it is a um, a plane, but it is a plane that looks like a Studebaker, which I think is a very, very funny thing, seeing as they are the children of the very first super team, the old, the old hats. Um, I think it's very funny that they're flying around in a Studebaker. Um, that might be something that, I, yeah, I, I should I should post that for, for Primo Panels because that's that's hilarious. Um, and we have these four Infinitors, and we learn that Hector Hall and uh, Lyta Trevor are engaged, so they're romantically entwined. Um, and they're also physically entwined in the back seat. They must have been macking, which isn't that so... That seems rude. You know, you're traveling in a car with someone, like friends, and two of your friends who are in a relationship, they're just back there just swapping spit, 
just and all the noises that come with it. It's like, what are you doing? Get a room. We're all in this car together. We're mere feet away from each other. What are you doing? You can't, you can't make out. It's rude. Uh, and and Nuclon says it. He says, uh, hey, now, about time you two lovebirds came up for air. Um, they're always making little quips about how those two are in love. And it's like, okay, yeah, they are in love. Jealous much? Which, yes, um, he is. So they're flying to a um, Island X because uh, it doesn't have a name. Uh, they found a map, or Jade found a map in the JSA um, archives, uh, which is which is cool. An unmarked map, but it had a location, but not a name. So they are flying there for a little uh, little tropical vacay. You know, even superheroes need some time off. Use that PTO. Uh, they are flying over, uh, must be the coast of it, and Jade, I don't understand Jade's powers, I don't know a lot about Jade, um, I always thought that she had some sort of similar, similar powers to Green Lantern, but I think it's more, she has some more similar powers to Green Lantern, her father, because he's not a space Green Lantern, he is an Earth Green Lantern, he's connected to, I mean, He's connected to the green, uh, just like Swamp Thing. Uh, at least that's how it's depicted in the Earth 2 comic series, which is the most Alan Scott that I've uh, read, uh, even though it is an alternate reality version of it from the New 52, which has kind of been pushed uh, to the wayside. Uh, some some would say rightfully so. So she, like, warps or phases through Danny Phantom style the, the door of the Studebaker plane and jumps down into the ocean, uh, and then Lyta does the same. And so everyone's everyone's jumping out of the plane, and, and Al, Nuclon, is like, well, wait, what, what are you guys doing? I, I, you're just going to leave me here in this plane? Because he's flying it. And uh, they, they all say, sorry, as they're jumping down into the uh, ocean. Uh, Nuclon parks the plane, lands the plane, and parks it. And it looks like it can turn into a regular Studebaker, which is cool. Um, so that's fun. And then he has to drag all their bags from wherever he parked it. I don't know where you park a plane on a deserted island, because there's no runway, and the odds that there is an area where it's clear and flat enough to land a plane safely, it feels difficult. And maybe it can do vertical takeoff and vertical landing. That'd be cool. It's a very high-tech Studebaker plane. Um, so that's definitely a possibility. Uh, so, um, so... Uh, Nuclon brings the bags to the beach where uh, Lyta and Hector are disrobing from their costumes. They wore their costumes to this vacation. They didn't just wear regular clothes, so they were just in that Studebaker plane uh, wearing their full costumes, uh, which I feel is a little bit silly to me. It's like, I get it, you're superheroes, and this is a superhero comic, but you're going on vacation. Imagine if I... Well, I don't really have a uniform, so never mind. That doesn't really work. But what? Imagine if someone who worked at, say, McDonald's was going on vacation and they were just wearing their McDonald's uniform on the plane. Wouldn't that be weird? That'd be insane. Uh, so, uh, uh, Hector and Lyta uh, are going to head off and find the secluded lagoon that they they saw on the map. I'm assuming to do in, engaged people things. You know, um, I found I sound like such a child. When I, because I had a smile on my face when I said that, because it's funny. Um, 
So we also kind of uh, learned here that uh, Nuclon Al has a crush on Lyta, uh, and he must have always has had, because, I mean, they've all grown up together, right? And when you grow up with people, that kind of stuff happens, especially as you, you know, mature into adults, and those kind of feelings crop up in your mind. Um, so that's not that's not a crazy thing to think. But so he jumps in, uh, Al jumps into the ocean uh, to swim with Jade, um, who's also, I mean, attractive. Everyone in comic books is attractive. So, uh, so, and he says, he says, um, so as he's disrobing, he's taking off his new clown costume. He says, Lyda sure is a doll. Can't remember when I didn't have a crush on her, but I guess she and Hector, and then he is cut off. That's weird. Uh, oh, he's cut off in mid-thought because Jade yells at him, hey, come on out, Carrot Top, because he has red hair. Uh, I'll protect you. And so he jumps in, and then he starts thinking, then again, there are guys that would trade their car stereo for a date with Jade, too, which that seems low. I mean, a car I guess car stereo guys are really into their stereos, so maybe that means a lot, but to me, it's like, well, I'm okay. Here's here's all of the here's all of the speakers and the radio from my car. Would you like to go out with me? Doesn't really doesn't really work that way now, does it? Uh so uh they're swimming and Nuclon asks Jade about um she he says, hardly recognize you without your long lost twin in tow, Jen. And she says that she asked Todd, who is um Obsidian. Uh, the the hero Obsidian, uh, to come, but he said he couldn't stand a whole weekend with young Preppies in love. So he must be a sort of, uh, I mean, this is the 80s, so there's, you know, there's the punk scene and uh, all sorts of alternative things going on. Uh, so Preppies are, uh, in some ways, rightly derided. Um, and and uh, Al says, or Nuclon, I, I, it's, I have such a hard time on this show talking about characters by name like i should call them their civilian names when they're not in costume and their hero names when they're in costume i've had this discussion on the show before i'm going to call them now jenny al lyta and hector when they're not in costume and then i'll call them their superhero names when they're in costume it just makes it makes it better to visualize for yourselves so al says yeah he's not too wild about heck is he hector Hey, we should have brought some snorkels. And then Jade makes snorkels out of her, what she calls her power pulse. So it's a little star on her hand. Um, so that's that's cool. So it is. It's Green Lantern in in essence, but there seems to be some different things. Because also she has green skin and green hair. Um, so they go snorkeling, and and Al is down there snorkeling, and he looks. He turns to Jenny, and he notices that she's not wearing a bathing suit. She is skinny dipping. And so he swims up very fast to the air, to the top, and he's like, oh, God, oh, God, she must think that I'm a total dork, uh, just up here treading water and, and stammering bubbles. Uh, and he says, guess I just wasn't brought up to be a free spirit. Um, so I, I don't know how old these heroes are supposed to be. I'm assuming young adult, uh, at least of legal age. Um, but I mean, still, even if you're 18, sometimes being around the opposite sex, uh, is weird and uncomfortable, especially in that situation where one of them is naked. Uh, so 
He starts swimming for sure. He makes up an excuse like, uh, uh, I'd better go find Hector and Lyda before it gets too dark. Uh, that you guys just got there. What time of day is it? Um, and, and she says, uh, sure thing. Uh, and, and she then thinks, wonderful. Albert probably thinks I was coming on to him. Hell, it's just that growing up in the Midwest, you don't get that much chance to swim in the boof, green or otherwise. I don't think that's true. I'm from the Midwest, and there are plenty of opportunities to swim in the, in the boof. Uh, because there's lakes everywhere. Minnesota has a thousand of them. They say it right there in their name. Minnesota, the land of a thousand lakes. And in South Dakota, where I'm from, there are also plenty of lakes, and there are plenty of opportunities in the summertime. There's not a lot of people around to go guinea dipping if you want. Um, so Al goes off to find those two. And so then we have a little scene with, uh, Jenny and she is, um, she says, besides clothes are just costumes after all, she's a free spirit. Uh, and she wants to be an actor. And so she, she says, when I get my big break in showbiz, I'll be able to whip up outfits like my own Edith Head, uh, who is a costumer in, uh, or fashion designer in Hollywood. Uh, she says, I could dress like Liz Taylor back when she was winning Burton's Heart as Cleopatra, the 1963 version, not the 1934 version, obviously. And then she wears a costume that looks very much like Cleopatra from that movie. Or, she says, like Rita Hayworth singing Put the Blame on Mammy, or Mame, I've never seen the movie, to Glenn Ford from the movie uh, Gilda from 1946. And then she says, I sort of, or she thinks, I sort of suspect this is the getup Albert Rothstein likes best. And she is wearing uh, a green and white version of uh, Lyda's costume uh, as Fury. Because, I mean, it's pretty obvious that Al has a crush on Lyda. To everyone, I guess. Um, and but then she says, but for today, I know a sarong a la Dorothy L'Amour in about a zillion mo old movies. And that's true. Uh, you can't get much more appropriate to the setting than this. So she's wearing sort of a strapless dress uh, with a, a high slit on the side. A sarong. It's a sarong. Look up a sarong if you want to know what a sarong looks like. Um, so now she's finally dressed. Um, she's wondering where everybody else is. So she finds some footprints and she thinks, well, these can't be Albert's unless he's wearing a woman's uh, size six boot. And it's like, now, while it's it's possible for the seven-foot-six-inch-tall Albert Rothstein uh, to have a size six foot, I feel like he would fall over quite a bit if he did. So that's probably not his boot. Um, so she says, or thinks, no harm in doing a bit of exploring on my own, even if headhunter, even if it's headhunters, they're not going to make much uh, headway against Green Lantern's daughter. True. Very true. We then cut to Al, and he has found the secret lagoon where Hector and Lyta have gone off to do engaged people things. Um, I'm assuming skinny dipping. And I'm assuming that because I have read the comic. Uh, so he says... Uh, that he hates, or he, Al thinks, there's a lot of thinking, uh, hate to disturb them since they just got engaged and all, but, and then he does, he just, he still does disturb them. He says, hey, down there, think maybe it's time for us to set up camp for the night. And they're like, oh, sure. And, and Lida says, come on in, where's Jade? And Al says, oh, she'll be along. I wanted to give her a little privacy. Uh, since she doesn't believe in bathing suits. And as he's he's doing all this, or he's saying all this while he's 
jumping from the cliff into the lagoon. And Hector says, so who does? And and then Al's like, wait, what a minute, wait a minute, what? <laughs> uh, realizing that uh, Lyta and Hector must be also in, in the buff uh, as well, nude, naked, in their birthday suits. And as Al comes up from his dive, he's thinking, face it, Albert, old buddy. In this crowd, you're definitely marching to the beat of a different drum. So he's a very, he's a very straight-laced sort of fought, plays by the rules of, you know, wearing bathing suits when you're swimming with people <laughs> that society has set forth for us all. Uh, we're then later, we cut to later, they've built a fire. I guess, I guess making camp, because uh, as we see throughout this, um, issue. They don't really bring tents or anything. They just bring sleeping bags. So I guess making camp was just building a fire, which I Nuclon could have done by himself. Uh, but uh, I guess that's just that's just how it is. They're sitting around it. They're all still wearing their bathing suits, even though it's dark. And I mean, it is a tropical island, so it's probably not cold. But it, I would definitely want to put on clothes after I'm done swimming. You know, maybe that's just me. Uh, so they're talking and says. It, Boy, it's true what they say. Night sure does fall fast in the tropics. And I was thinking the same thing, Hector. It's thinking the exact same thing. Um, Lyda is worried. She's wondering where, where Jenny Lynn is. Why hasn't she shown up? And Al says, well, it beats me. Uh, but the moon's pretty bright. Why don't we go out and hunt her up? Which is a weird way. Why don't we just go find her? And as they're about to do that, they hear from behind her, oh, isn't that sweet? And here I didn't even think you guys cared. And it's Jenny Lynn, but she is in, for whatever reason, so for this entire time, she has been green with green hair, but now she is is white with uh, red hair, uh, which I guess she can turn it on and off. I always thought she was just always green. Everything I've ever seen, she's always green, so I guess maybe that's a later thing, but she can turn it on and off, I guess. Um... And she says, yep, sorry, all I didn't mean to give anybody heart failure. It's just that, well, I got to yak in with the island's one permanent resident, and she was so fascinating, I guess I forgot the time, you know? And we see this blonde woman wearing, uh, I guess, what you would call, like, jungle scientist, jungle explorer fashion. It's like an all-white, white shoes, white pants, white shirt with pockets, with tactical pockets on it, and she's holding a flower in her hand like a normal person, and she says, welcome to Tashmi, uh, which is the name of the island. They all introduce themselves, and uh, Jenny tells everyone that Rose is a botanist doing research here, and she made supper for them uh, from her garden on the other side of the island. And Jenny informs everybody that uh, she's told Rose about their, you know, Infinity Incorporated stuff, all of them being superheroes, and and she's fine with it. Obviously, she's just she's just some woman on an island. What what harm could it be revealing your secret identities to her? You came in full superhero costume, and then took them off. So, um, uh, so Rose says that she's been on this island alone uh, for a very long time, uh, alone except for the 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 island's plant life and her dreams, of course. But then again, my dreams, or perhaps I should say my nightmares or why i came here in the first place bum 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 um and jenny says whoa that gives me an idea why don't we you know that we're it's dark there's a fire we're out in the wilderness why don't we tell our scariest nightmares 
Um, not scary stories, scary nightmares. And Rose says, that sounds great. Why don't you go first, Jenny Lynn? And Jenny Lynn says, oh, oh no, dang it. I didn't want to go first. Um, but she goes first and she tells about this recurring dream where she has a dream about a half man. As she says, half swamp scuzz, all white, chalk white, eight foot tall Frankenstein. And if that sounds familiar to you, it's because it is. It's Solomon Grundy. Um, but she didn't know that he was a real thing until recently. And it's funny because, um, well, she says, I know you might have trouble believing that, that Rose, but these three can vouch for me, right? After all, they helped me out when he came after me once because I'm who I am. Uh, and that's, it's, that's from issue number three of Infinity Incorporated. And that is interesting, uh, because Solomon Grundy was originally a... Green Lantern, Alan Scott villain um, before he sort of branched out into being also a Batman villain and all this kind of stuff um, because he's like he's like death uh, and it's the opposite of life which is you know the green. Uh, Al tells about a story where he becomes an unstoppable mutant monster because he is kind of a mutant. He's been you know bombarded with nuclear energy, turning him into this huge, super strong guy. Uh, Lida tells about her nightmares of. Greek mythology because she grew up around Amazons, real life Amazons, and these creatures are real, so Medusa and Cyclops. And Hector tells about his recurring nightmare where he is a pharaoh who gets buried alive because his parents claim that they are reincarnated ancient Egyptian people, a warrior and a princess, that kind of, you know, we all know the story. If you've listened to the show, Hawkman uh, in Flash Comics number one, his, his origin there. Um, so Rose then tells about her nightmare and her nightmare is about her and her sister, which is weird because she doesn't have a sister. Um, her and her sister are helping out a professor Hollis who is conducting some secret botanical experiments here on Tashmi, um, in this, in this nightmare. And, uh, Professor Hollis gives Rose a rose, very, very good, um, to, to study and learn all of its secrets. And he gives a, th a jungle thorn, which is like a thorny vine, to um, her sister, who doesn't have a name. And uh, this unnamed sister studies this thorn so like thoroughly and in-depthly that she starts to take on the aspects of this thorn. She gets like claws and she gets violent and she feels like everyone hates her. Like Hollis said, for you, I have this jungle thorn. Find out why nature has made it an outcast, hostile, dangerous, cursed. So she becomes this very dangerous, very violent uh, woman who attacks Rose and then runs off into the jungle and uh, we later hear about, uh, soon after, uh, the natives of the island are terrified by a cruel, inhuman witch they call the Thorn. And we see this unnamed sister, unnamed, unreal sister, standing uh, in the costume of Thorn from the cover. Um, and then uh, Rose says, In my dream, I trail her from the jungles to civilization, hoping desperately to reach her, to save her, but to no avail. 
And Al says, well, that's weird, but those natives, I thought that you were the only one on this island. And it's like, well, Albert, it's a dream, says Jenny. Um, and Rose says, yes, a dream, yet so real, so horrifyingly real, that in time I came back to this island where I'd done field work so long before, and I won't leave until I've exercised the demon forever. Dun, dun, dun. The demon. Uh, so Rose then says goodnight to everyone and heads back to the island. But she says, come and see me tomorrow, won't you, um, to my little tiny jungle hut. And they all uh, get in their sleeping bags and they go to sleep. Uh, and we say, uh, we see some uh, narration that says, this night... Um, uh, Albert Rothstein dreams not of his oft-recurring oft dream in which he becomes a slavering, mutated monstrosity, a nuclear nightmare on two legs. He does not even dream about Lyta Trevor. Strangely enough, he dreams of Jenny Lynn Hayden, and you think, oh no, he's about to have a, a sexy dream about Jenny. But it's not. It's a very scary, very, very uh, scary nightmare where some vines come from the forest and wrap around Jenny's neck and then her mouth and then drag her away. Uh, Al then wakes up from this terrible nightmare and looks around to see that it has come true. Where is Jenny Lynn? Where is she? Um, Al then puts on his Nuclon costume and runs off into the forest. So now he's Nuclon. I'm going to refer to him as Nuclon. And he hears a cry for help. It's H-E-L-L-L-L-P-P-Dash-Dash-Help! Uh, from Jenny Lynn, from the uh, from the forest, he rushes in, and he uh, a, a voice comes from the dark that says, "Where is my sister?" And he looks, and his face is looking so shocked. He says, "This this this can't be happening, can it?" And we then see Thorn uh, with a with a sort of wrapped up Jenny Lynn in her sleeping bag up against this very thorny beanstalk-looking um, plant. And Thorne says, The girl doesn't seem to, to want to talk, so I allowed her gag to slip just long enough for her to be to bring someone who might. Well, tell me the whereabouts of my precious sister before you before you suffer the fate I've long intended for her. Um, and Al, or Nuclon, then thinks, great, that huge beanstalk or whatever it, it is covers Jade's hand, and she probably can't use her power pulse through anything so much like wood, which brings up the fact that Green Lantern's Alan Scott's original, you know, sort of weakness was wood, which, what, is, what a silly weakness. Um, uh, and so Nuclon's got to figure out a way to, to get, uh, get Jenny. Um... Nuclon says, hey, I just realized you must be Thorn, right? But Rose told us her sister was just somebody in a dream. And Thorn says, she has ever been a fool, and she will pay dearly for denying my existence. She's angry. Uh, she then um, throws a bunch of thorns at uh, Nuclon and tacks him to this tree. And he, sa he says, look, I'm no butterfly. Um, and because that's like what butterfly collectors do they pin the wings so they're like all outstretched so you can see them better it's a uh, barbaric um i think that butterflies are dead before they do that but still you did just kill a thing to put it on your wall it's a little bit weird it feels weird to me 
Uh, and then tendrils come and wrap him around this tree, and he can't seem, even with his strength, he can't seem to bust through them. So Thorn threatens to, uh, you know, crush Jade, Jenny. I don't, it's confusing. I'm going to say Jenny because she didn't. we didn't see her suit up. Jenny into protoplasm if uh, Nuclon doesn't tell her where Rose is, which implies that uh, Jenny is a ghost, which she is not. So that's a weird turn of phrase. But just then, uh, Fury, not Lyta, and Silver Scarab, not Hector, come out from the darkness of the forest. And they're like, you're not the only one who, you know, heard Jade's cry for help. So now the tide could possibly be turning a little bit in, in our hero's favor. And it does, it does for a time. Uh, uh, Fury busts Nuclon out of the vines, and Hector Hall blasts vines with, sorry, Silver Scarab blasts vines with his solar, uh, you know, his solar suit. His, his suit turns solar energy into well, solar energy that he can use in a more concentrated way. So he's blasting vines left and right uh, when from behind him uh, a, a vine sort of, sort of knocks his head into a tree, knocking him out, and Lyta, Fury, uh, in her, you know, ca- you know, she cares about Hector Hall, Silver Scarab, so she, he's, she's like, Hector! And she then gets uh, thwapped uh, by... There's great, there's great onomatopoeias in this. Uh, there's wham, there's snap, there's thwap. It's really good. Um, uh, she gets thwapped in the back of the head as well, and knocking her out. And Thorne says, you should have been watching your own posterior girl instead of his. Are you implying that she was checking out his butt, Thorne? Ugh, come on. And Thorne says, I don't even need to keep you two alive since the others will tell me all I need to know. And we then cut to Nuklon, who is thinking, there's no reasoning with her, but hold it, I keep forgetting. I'm more than a 7'6 Nyx reject now. Uh, and so he then he then sort of thinks, since I picked up a new power out in Utah when I got zapped by that thorium reactor, which it doesn't give us a reference point for this, so it must have been a very recent issue, maybe? Or maybe that's just his origin. That's That's where he got his powers and it's still i guess it's still technically relatively early on in his being a uh superpowered being because if he just debuted as both nuclon and albert julian rothstein as himself in june of 1983 we're not even two years and yeah so that's that makes sense that makes sense that that could be his origin and that's why there's no reference point for that uh, so he sort of, he does a, uh, basically a flash move in a sense. He uh, makes himself unsolid enough. He sort of separates his atoms in a way that the uh, more solid material can pass through. And then as he does that, uh, Thorn sends her giant thorny beanstalk at him. And he says, well, wait, maybe I can do the reverse as well and make himself more solid. So binding his atoms more tightly together, making it more difficult to things to pierce his outer membrane, his skin, uh, which does work. The the thorny beanstalk hits him. He says, that hurt like hell, but at least I withstood 
that hammer blow and even broke one of the thorns without its piercing my skin. So it did work. His, his more tightly packed atoms made him semi-invulnerable, I guess. Impenetrable is probably a better word. He then rips um, the beanstalk in half and he hears it scream. There's a really good rip with multiple Ps. And we see Thorn yelling in pain when he does that. Uh, he then jumps up and grabs Jenny Lynn off of the beanstalk and um, then is attempting to topple it out of the ground, like pull it out of the ground. Uh, when uh, Fury wakes up and sees what he's doing and she lends him a hand and they both topple it over while Silver Scarab, who has woken up, blasts it with a solar beam. Um, and then something crazy happens. Thorn runs into the flames with the beanstalk and then it it blows up in a sound effect that goes, Fracoom! Fracoom! Which is, that's quite a, that is quite a, an explosion sound. Um, so they're confused. They're like, well, I guess that's the last we'll see of the Thorn, whoever she was. And Alice thinking, is it, I wonder, dot, 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 dot. Uh, we then cut to, um, oh, we don't cut to anywhere. We're still there. Oh, Jenny is in her Jade costume. So, um, she is Jade. Uh, but, but Nuclon says, you all right, Jenny Lynn? And she says, yeah, I, I think so. But like, I had this horrible dream. Um, and Al or Nuclon's thinking, but it's the same one I had. And uh, they're, they're standing around talking. Now, doesn't anybody have the slightest idea what went on here tonight? Um, and Fury says Rose might have some of the answers. And uh, Jade says, hey, that's right. We've got to check on her make sure the thorn didn't do her in. Uh, we then cut to the dawn. And uh, the team is back in the Studebaker plane. And... Uh, you know, Jade saying, oh, man, I feel like a wimp. I'm sorry you guys had to come rescue me. And uh, Silver Scarab says, well, you know what? Next time we'll, we'll, we'll swap roles the next go around. We'll get all trussed up and uh, let you work your little green buttons off to save us. And um, Jade says, oh, thanks, guys. That means a lot. Uh, she says, you guys are all heart, which they say a lot in this, which must be an 80s turn of phrase or something. Um, and then Jade says, and how are you doing back there, Rose? Uh, so they've gotten Rose from her, her jungle hut. And she's back with all the bags because there's apparently only space for four in this Studebaker plane, which is weird because there are more than four members of Infinity Incorporated. Um, but Rose says, still trying to figure out who this thorn really is and why she thinks she's my sister. But I'll be all right when I get back among other human beings again. Yes, I'm sure I'll be fine then. So there's a part of this this last panel, this last image, where it is a close-up of Rose's face, and the other half is sort of covered by darkness, and we see an out we see a an image of Thorn, the Thorn's face. Um, and she is in black and white, and uh, she's looking very crazed. And then in the bottom right-hand corner, it says, Admit it, you knew Rose and Thorn were the same person all along, didn't you? To tell the truth, so did we. But don't tell the Infinitors, okay? Because they've got a shock or two coming. Now, I 
I'll be honest. I I did I do some research before reading these issues because it's important for me to get the information to you all. Um, and I knew that Thorne and Rose were the same person all along. But I don't know if it's entirely clear that they are the same person. Because she could have there's 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 num there's numerous ways to explain why Rose has dreams about a sister she doesn't have. We're talking memory loss. We're talking some sort of implanted memories. Um, any sort of comic book reason that you could pick to say this is why she doesn't remember ever having a sister. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was really obvious that they were the same person. Um, and I guess having done the research and knowing that they are the same person, maybe I was looking for more obvious signs. Maybe if I wasn't biased from the beginning, I I would have I would have seen something maybe. But I, I just don't think that the story itself screams they're the same person. Um, but obviously she's already been an established character, and maybe it's already been established that Roseanne Thorne are the same person um, from her earliest adventures. And so people who have read, I mean that's all, that's quite a, that's quite a jump. That's like forty years uh, from her debut, but. Uh, so yeah, so Rose and Thorne are the same person, and also the Infinitors have got a shock or two coming. So that's that's scary. Uh, but it also it says next Chroma. So uh, in 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 a month or in multiple episodes when we get to uh, we get to Infinity Incorporated number fourteen, um, we'll learn all about Chroma. And also just to, some foreshadowing, uh, Infinity Incorporated is very important to Crisis on Infinite Earths in a sense, because they have eight tie-in issues with Crisis on Infinite Earths, which makes sense, Earth 2 being one of the most prominent Earths, and their stories being folded into the Earth 1 universe, um, that's pretty That's pretty important. Uh, so that's exciting, when we get to them, in however long it'll take us to get there. Um, we then, uh, we then, uh, the last page of this issue is also another sort of full-page pinup of the team, just like we saw in Batman and the Outsiders number 20 last episode, which I think is really cool. They should do that more often in comic books. Um, and at the top it says, we thought we'd, you'd like to see a pinup by newcomer Todd McFarlane, a young Canadian living in, sta- in the state of Washington, who has volunteered to lend us a very talented hand for an issue or two. Todd's work has appeared in Marvel's Coyote and elsewhere. Enjoy. So it looks like Todd McFarlane will be the artist on the next couple issues of Infinity Incorporated. But it's this very cool team shot of, we've got Obsidian at the top uh, looking all scary um, with his blue and black costume and his big cape. And then we have a guy in the middle who I don't know. Um, He has wings and a a blue sort of um, singlet costume with a big N on it. Um, I don't know who that is. Uh, but uh, maybe we'll find out. Uh, we have the star-spangled kid on the left. Uh, we have Jade and uh, Fury on top of Nuclon's shoulders, and then we have Silver Scarab on the right. It's pretty good. I'll post it um, for this week sometime, uh, probably on Friday when I post uh, the the cover as well. Uh, but yeah, that that's Infinity Incorporated number thirteen. Uh, so let's move on to the next issue.
And that issue, as I said at the top, is the new Teen Titans number 7, released January 17th, 1985, with a cover date of April 1985. So let's talk a second about this issue and about this series. So as you all know, we talked about the Tales of the New Teen Titans number 52 a, a few episodes ago. I think maybe episode 2, episode 1, maybe even episode 3. It's been a while. I can't remember. But that one and this one are connected. Same same creators. I mean, Marv Wolfman created both uh, or, or was the writer for both. But the New Teen Titans takes place about six months after Tales of the New Teen Titans. So it's going to be a little bit confusing. But the events of, you know, Tales of the New Teen Titans, number 52, number 53, all those come about six months after this one. Uh, or actually, so as they're, as they're released, they're about six months apart each time. So, so this month's Tales of the New Teen Titans happened about six months prior to this one uh, in here. So there's going to be some things that are confusing, some things that are kind of foreshadowing things that are going to happen in Tales of the New Teen Titans. And after I learned that, it's kind of cool, but if if you didn't have that information going in, you'd be very, very, very confused, because if you're like me, you think, oh, these are the same characters, and so they're following the same story. But that's not the case. Uh, it's about six months later. So, And it's really confusing jumping in right now, because Asriel, the winged alien angel, whatever you want to call him, that we saw in Tales of the New Teen Times number 52 also makes an appearance in this one. So you think, just from the cover, oh, this one's jumping in right from the after that one. It's not. Um, but that's So that's good for you to know, and it's good for me to know, because uh, I was very confused for at first. But no debuts in this one except for uh, one person, uh, who I think this might be her first debut, but we'll get into that when we get into the story itself. But uh, production-wise, it was written by Marv Wolfman, penciled by Louis, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, and inked by Romeo Tengal, lettered by Philip Hugh Felix, and colored by Adrian Roy or Waugh. I should really find out. That feels like something that I should stop saying both and just find out which one it is. But, uh, you know, uh, until then, I'm just going to keep saying both because we don't know. So let's get into this issue. Uh, the cover is a sort of um, uh, a drawing of uh, the the angel slash alien slash who knows what he is, Azriel, uh, carrying Lilith, uh, the telepathic or uh, precognitive member of the Titans, who's later or c currently or formerly known as Omen, uh, being chased by Starfire, who is shooting uh, star bolts at them. Uh, which they seem more like star beams, and I'm kind of mad that they're not green. Maybe that's, I mean, that's obviously a later thing, or maybe it never happens at all. It's only in the cartoon, but I mean, just from my childhood, I just, I think they should be green. But I digress. Let's get back into the story, or let's get into the story proper for the first time. Uh, so the, the, the issue starts with a scene in Lilith's bedroom, and she's having a nightmare, and in that nightmare, there is uh, images of the sun, things are on fire, her bed is on fire, she is herself on fire, uh, she's burning up, and she's having not a great time. So she bolts upright in bed and says, another nightmare, how long will this go on? We learn later on in this issue that uh, Lilith has, has had these nightmares uh, for a very long time, especially when she's around 
the Teen Titans or remember the Teen Titans and stuff like that. We then cut to a, um, a two-page spread uh, with the title, which is The Origin of Lilith. So we're going to learn all about Lilith and where she came from. Uh, but first, we see Asriel. He is flying through the sky and being chased by a UBS-TV news chopper. And Asriel is talking to himself, saying things like, She's here, I know she is, and as much in love with me as I am with her. Lilith, the Titans denied me your heart, but they'll deny it no longer. Lilith, my darling, I have returned. And she, he, he, he flies into her apartment and sees that she's not there, and so flies out and says... Um, Lilith will be mine forever. And he's got tears in his eyes. He's very sad. He's very in love. Uh, so this, obviously, obviously, as we know, is six months after, uh, like, Tales of the New, T- New Teen Titans number 52. Uh, so they're going to reference things that happened likely in that issue uh, in terms of Asriel um, and, and how that happened. But obviously, we won't get to that issue for some time. So just bear with me. Uh, with several blocks away, Starfire and Lilith are walking through uh, the Greenwich Village Art Show, which is nice. And they're talking about all the great art, and they see some of these art, or some of these art, some uh, pieces, and uh, they're pointed out to the artist, and it turns out it's Joe. It's Jericho, uh, Joe Wilson. And they're talking to Joe, and they say, oh, your art's so wonderful. But then suddenly, everyone at the art show looks up and points up, and, you know, is confused about what is up there. It says, it ain't a plane and it sure ain't Superman. But I've never seen a bird that looked like that. Because the bird looks like a dude with wings. Because it's Asriel. And so he swoops down and grabs Lilith. And you think, oh gosh, this is going to get, like, he's, he's being violent. But immediately, as soon as she is in his arms, she's like, I didn't think you'd ever return. I missed you so much. So they're clearly both in love with each other. Which is nice. It's nice that these young kids can find love. Uh... Starfire isn't sure what's going on, so she is running through the art show chasing after them and transforms into Starfire. I guess she was probably Coriander uh, before, and now she's Starfire. And so she uh, she flies after them. And this is like you know this is where the scene of from the cover comes from. Uh, she's chasing after him, but she's noticing that. Lilith isn't like resisting and she isn't trying to get away and it doesn't seem like he's being you know violent or anything towards her and then they kiss lovingly they say that I love you and and Lilith says that she wants to love him but but I mean she's got reservations obviously he's some sort of weird winged man from who knows where maybe from heaven I don't know if you believe in that kind of stuff and so Starfire can't attack Asriel because she could hit Lilith, and it doesn't seem like Lilith is, you know, in danger. But suddenly, Lilith glows with like a like a burning intensity, and it, and Corey or Starfire thinks, "Hold it! What's he doing to her?" Lilith's glowing, dot dot dot, burning just like the last time. Then it has a star uh, reference to Tales of the Teen Titans number fifty three, which is the issue after the one that we've already covered. So. We'll learn all about that when we get to that one. Uh, and Asriel can't hold on because of the burning. Uh, or, hmm, it's a question of whether he drops Lilith first or if Starfire shoots him, which then causes him to drop Lilith. But either way, he drops Lilith and she begins to fall to the earth, as does Asriel because he's been blasted by Starfire. 
Starfire catches Lilith, saving her, uh, and Joe rushes to Azrael uh, to deal with him using his Jericho powers if need be. But as soon as Azrael looks up, Joe can see that he's not, he doesn't have violence in his heart or anything. He's just, he's confused and scared and, and stuff like that. So Joe reaches out an open hand rather than a closed fist, an open hand of friendship rather than a closed fist of violence. And they decide to go somewhere else to talk more privately to kind of hash out what is going on. So they head back to uh, Lilith's apartment. But we have a little cut here. We cut to three miles uptown from Washington Square Park. And we see a sign that says, on this site to be erected, the Church of Blood. Which, I mean, if you know anything about Teen Titans lore... Uh, which some of you might, but Brother Blood is a common enemy of the Titans. But that's not what we're worrying about right now. We're worrying about this place called Sun Publishing. Uh, a, a unseen woman, we see only her legs uh, and her hands. It, it, she's walking through this office of Sun Publishing, and she's yelling at people to stop gossiping and get back to work, ripping up people's layouts and saying they suck, firing a guy whose wife just had a baby, and... And telling telling a um, a person to print the editorial just like she uh, wrote it, and then she steps into her palatial office. Like she has a fountain, it looks like a pool in the middle. Uh, it's a very big and uh, seemingly impractical office, um, where she meets a man named Michael. Who, a lot of a lot of biblical names in this one: Azrael, Michael, Jericho. I think is a biblical reference. Um, she asked him here to talk to him about the Venture Magazine uh, takeover bid that they had put in. And it turns out that Morden Publishing outbid them, but it seems that last minute they increased their offer substantially over Sun Publishing's. Uh, and this woman uh, seems to think that they got inside information from someone uh, who she believes is Michael. And uh, she gives him a, a kiss, uh, the kiss of death, really, because after she kisses him, uh, sh he starts to uh, melt. Uh, his skin starts to melt off of his bones, and he is on fire. Um, he refers to her as Thea, T-H-I-A, um, which we believe is her name, and we do learn it is her name later on. And uh, after this, we see a full-page... Um, shot of this woman she's in a purple gown it's very luxurious she's got a big chunky gold belt and some chunky necklaces she got red hair and we see the burned remains of this michael person um it's not good uh he's he's all he's all bones and uh rags burned rags so she seems pretty pretty ruthless and also seems to have some sort of powers uh in this sort of situation uh she then walks to her floor-to-ceiling windows uh, and is gazing up at the sun and says, it's been too long since I've emerged or embraced your warming rays. I feel excited again. Perhaps it is time to... And uh, she's interrupted by the man who was questioning her editorial earlier, and she blasts out a sphere from her mouth. It's like a green-yellow sphere, and it hits the guy and uh, burns him up and he's like, what What are you doing? What are you doing? And she's like, isn't it obvious, Leonard? You've just been fired as he's burning um, to ash, which is very funny. Uh, if I had fire powers, you know I'd be making 
a lot of fire puns. Uh, it'd be like Batman and Robin, the movie, uh, with Mr. Freeze, Dr. Freeze. But Mr. Freeze? Dr. Freeze. Oh, man, I am blanking on which one it is. Dr. Freeze. Mr. F- Mr. Freeze. It's Mr. Freeze. It's Mr. Freeze. I'm sure of that now. Mr. Freeze. Okay, I can't. Mr. Freeze. It's Mr. Freeze. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe I I just blinked that badly. That's embarrassing. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody about that. Uh, she then melts the glass in her office, which, okay, you could have just opened the door. Uh, it seems like there's a balcony. And then she f- begins to fly up closer and closer to the sun. And as she's doing that, her purple gown is changing into a, a floor-length... Uh, much different cut. So her one was a sort of poncho or like big sleeves, big giant sleeves uh, one on top. And now she's got a more of a uh, a very low cut, thick strapped uh, floor length gown. Uh, and she's got a headdress. And she reveals that she is Thea, goddess of the sun. And uh, she's home once. And then she's, she's stopped in her track. She says, she's here nearby. I have touched the sun, and I can sense her presence. After all these years of searching, I've found her at last. Who could she be speaking about? It's um, it's Lilith. She's talking about Lilith. Uh, but back at Lilith's apartment, we uh, get back to the foursome that we left previously. Um, Lilith talks about how the fact that her, basically any time, any part of her life before, you know, coming to the Titans is kind of a blank. Uh, she doesn't know where she came from. She doesn't know where her powers came from. Um, so she she doesn't know. And all she, the only sort of glimpses she gets are in her nightmares, uh, the, these nightmares that she sh- suffers uh, that have uh, restarted after joining the Titans again. Um, and Azrael says, "Let us then let us leave and go away where none will ever find us. My darling, whatever you ask, I'll make it yours. Wow, what a guy. What a guy. Um, and so Corey... Uh, as as we all are, are confused as why why is being with the Titans giving you these nightmares and that burning glow around you? That wasn't any nightmare. Yeah, that was real. That was a real thing that happened. And Lilith says, "Yeah, I'm scared about that too." Lilith says that she feels different. That she feels things deep inside of her. She senses the senses the future, but there's more: a sense of darkness, heat, and fire, which doesn't really make any sense because fire gives off light. You know, that's its whole purpose, other than heat, obviously. But she then asks, you feel it too, don't you? It's almost alive now. And uh, Coriander says, or Starfire says, because she's in her Starfire uh, outfit. Uh, she says, it is hot. And look outside, there's some kind of glow in the sky. <laughs> Starfire, that's the sun. <laughs> Silly. Uh, oh, wait, no, it's not the sun. The windows, they're hot to the touch. And then suddenly the glass melts and in flies Thea, goddess of the sun. Uh, and Thea says, yes, it is she, the one, great Gaia, at last. And uh, Thea blasts a, uh, a, a, a I, I guess, I don't, I don't want to say a beam, a, uh, a gout of flame at uh, the foursome, at the balcony. And so the building is on fire, but it, it, it the fire is hurting only Starfire, Jericho, and Asriel, not Lilith. And... Thea flies down and says, 
you will come with me. And Lilith says, but why? And Thea says, for the very best of reasons. The reason I've searched for you for almost two decades. I am your mother. And you belong with me. So that's cool. I mean, if uh, a vindictive uh, goddess of the sun is cool to have for a mom, I would assume not. Uh, I would assume that's why she is not with her currently. Uh, So Thea grabs Lilith and begins to take her away and Azrael yells no and and Starfire is is shocked and so they you know jump into action and Starfire shoots uh, a star bolt at Thea but as you'll know if you know anything about Starfire or if you don't know if you don't know anything about Starfire her powers are very similar to Superman in the sense that she gets her powers from sunlight and so her blasts are, are very solar energy based and so, obviously, shooting them at the goddess of the sun doesn't really work very well. Uh, so Thea redirects them back at Starfire and shoots her out of the sky. And Asriel races down to catch her um, so she, she can get her senses back about herself. Starfire thanks Asriel and then uh, begins rushing back into battle. Uh, Thea's shooting some sort of fire-based attacks at Starfire, and uh, Starfire is talking to herself uh, and says, Nightwing tells me my powers can be too dangerous, that I should curb their use. I have, and so I'd forgotten how powerful I really can be, but with you, I don't have to hold back. And she, like, puts both of her fists together and, like, does a, I don't know what kind of attack that would be, but she basically, like, does a double, like a super punch, I guess is what you call it, like a two two fists into one fist punch into Thea's chin. Uh, she doesn't have to hold back, and that's a good thing for Starfire because Starfire is super powerful. And uh, Thea, I mean, she takes the punch and says, "For a mortal, you are extraordinary, though certainly not my equal. The one called Lilith is is my daughter. She belongs with me." And so she flies off into a, a flash of light. Uh, that has that swallows her up and Lilith up as well. Um, and and they're wondering where they took or where she took Lilith. And Azrael is is screaming in, in agony, you know, of of the heart. He says, "We must find her." And Starfire says, "We will, but not alone. Come on, let's call for the other Titans." Uh, we then have a, a <laughs> strangely a kind of a dig at the 59th Street Bridge. Because uh, it says, Car- Simon and Garfunkel wrote a song about it once, but the 59th Street Bridge is not something to sing about. Indeed, it's been rated one of the worst, 10 worst bridges in America. It feels kind of unnecessary in this context to uh, make a dig at uh, a random bridge, but I guess DC is, at this time, headquartered in New York. So, which I think it some might still be. I mean, obviously a lot of stuff is done from home, artists and stuff like that. And writers. So, but at this time, I believe it was uh, headquartered in New York. So maybe that's just from personal experience. They're like, I hate that bridge so much. I'm putting it in a comic book. Uh, the song, of course, is the 59th Street Bridge song, uh, parentheses, Feeling Groovy by Simon and Garfunkel. Do you want to check it out? It's, it's a fine tune if you like Simon and Garfunkel. So, um, enough of making fun of uh, um, engineering. Uh, suspension bridges are cool, even if maybe some aren't as cool as others. They're they're a feat of physics, and it's cool, so let's leave them alone. They didn't do anything. They didn't do anything to deserve that. We see um, Beast Boy and Cyborg just chilling out on top of the bridge, which if I had superpowers and the ability to, I would go sit up on high stuff all the time. 
Empire State Building, don't mind if I do. Be sitting right up on top. Uh, they're talking about how they've been kind of bored. It's been kind of quiet lately, and um, they wanted to, you know, they want some action. They, they wanted some, you know, you, you want you want it to settle down when it's busy, but then when it gets calm, you're like, dang, this is boring. Give me something to do. Um, they then, they mentioned the tower, uh, which is Titan's Tower, and they say, what a sorry sight. It'll be months before the new tower is built, and they show the, um, uh, the East River, where I believe it is located, and indeed, it is merely the, um, looks like halfway up to the, uh, sort of T, so it's not even as tall, it's not even half as tall as it used to be, uh, so, and you can see cranes, and so something is going to happen in the next six months of, uh, Tales of the New Teen Titans, where the, uh, tower is going to be destroyed. That's, that's, I find this very interesting, the sort of foreshadowing, it's like, oh my gosh, what's gonna happen? You know, when you're kind of expecting, like, is this going to be the thing that destroys the tower? You know, uh, when they're, you know, looking out uh, at the tower, they get the signal, the Titan signal to, uh, you know, convene for whatever reason. Uh, and they do at Star Labs, which uh, now serves as the Titans temporary headquarters. And we see Wonder Girl has returned. So she is done with her honeymoon. She she's um, she's back being Wonder Girl. Uh, so that's great. Hopefully things are going well for her. Uh, so they're, they are in the process of trying to find out who is this woman and why has she taken Lilith other than the fact that she claims that she is her mother. Uh, they do some sketch artistry and uh, it takes them about 15 minutes uh, for the computer to composite a picture. And uh, Starfire and Azrael confirm that that is the woman who took Lilith so they um, they now have a picture of her, which Wonder Girl almost immediately recognizes as Hyper or not Hyperion. Um, she says that Hyperion held me in his power, told me about his wife, the goddess Thea. That's the image he placed in my mind. So that image of that face. And this statement has a editor's note that says Star TNT number eleven and twelve. Uh, from Marv, Marv Wolfman, which is confusing. This entire, the entire era of Teen Titans, right, in this is confusing because the internet is never sure which one you're talking about because there is New Teen Titans Volume 1 and New, New Teen Titans Volume 2 because New Teen, Teen Titans Volume 1 turns into Tales of the New Teen Titans and then they start another New Teen Titans, which is Volume 2, which is what we're in at this moment. So, it's talking about New Teen Titans, the, or The New Teen Titans, Volume 1, uh, 11 and 12, but TNT is not the proper acronym. I thought it was The New Titans because uh, The New Teen Titans turns into uh, the, the New Titans. It's very confusing, all this kind of stuff, and DC isn't even con uh, sure most of the time which one it's talking about because, just a little background, um, if you go to the event Crisis on Infinite Earths on DC uh, Universe Infinite, which is a very long title for their online comics website, and you go down to New Teen Titans, one of the there's a tie-in issue for this series in Crisis on Infinite Earths, but it's it's pulling from a completely different. It's pulling from Volume One, and so it, it says that this comic book from like 1983 is a tie-in to an event that didn't even start yet 
uh, but that's because something is coded incorrectly in DC Universe Infinite uh, uh, that that pulls the wrong uh, wrong issue, and so that's even DC is confused uh, as am I. But enough of that tangent. Uh, it's just it's just always doing research for this is like near impossible because the internet's never sure which volume you're talking about. So we know that Thea is the wife of Hyperion, one of uh, presumably Greek gods that the Titans have battled previously in issues 11 and 12 of volume one. So they're dealing with some really, really powerful people here. And Nightwing says... Thea kidnapped Lilith. Saving her would be risky. We're facing powers far greater than our own. So what do you guys think? And everyone's like, what are you talking about? We gotta go save Lilith. And it's like, all right, let's do it. They jump in the T-Jet, and they're flying in. Uh, they have to fly through the, the semi-permeable semi semi layer of Paradise's Island's protection uh, through some clouds and lightning and stuff. But they bust through onto Paradise Island's airspace, and it doesn't look right. It looks like there's things destroyed. Um, some some columns and roofs have been collapsed. It's, it doesn't look great. Uh, and Donna flies down immediately because she's like, oh my gosh, what's happened? And uh, Azrael and Starfire chase after her. But uh, Azrael, of course, can't touch the ground because no man may set foot on Paradise Island. And Donna says, I don't care about the temples, Corey, but look around, look around you, listen, nobody's here, my mother and all the Amazons, they're gone, gone. So that's weird, because the Amazons are some pretty, pretty tough customers. Um, so uh, they're back on the T-Jet, the and their uh, Corey is giving them all the rundown, Paradise Island is destroyed, and the Amazons are gone. Uh, and Nightwing is asking, like, no sign of them, no clues. If only I could go down there and investigate. And Wonder Girl flies up and says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to march into Tartarus, which is uh, the prison prison of the Titans, I believe, uh, right down to the depths of hell. And if need be, we'll fight the gods themselves to get back my mother, the Amazons, and Lilith. Nothing will stop me now. Nothing. And that last nothing has a very uh, spiky speech bubble. And the next issue is Olympus under siege. Uh, so that should be interesting. Uh, we'll learn about what, what's happening there. What happened to those gosh dang Amazons? Those tough ladies. So that was a very confusing uh, issue. Obviously, because like I said, things have happened in the interim between between the issue we covered and, and that one. Uh, but hopefully it made, uh, I gave enough context for things to ensure that it made sense to you. Um, because it made more sense to me once I learned that it takes place six months after. So, so good. So that's good. Um, so let's move on to Saga of Swamp Thing number 35. Uh, released January 17th, 1985, with a cover date of April 1985, like I said, like all the uh, all the rest of them. And in this issue, we have uh, a couple debuts to the podcast, but of course not debuts in and of themselves. Uh, we have Swamp Thing, uh, previously known as, uh, or previously kind of Alec Holland, although he's he's not actually ever been Alec Holland, he's just taken his sort of 
psychology and, and mental brainwaves and stuff like that. Uh, so that's that's Swamp Thing stuff. That's, you know, being the avatar of the green. Um, uh, he, of course, debuted in Swamp Thing number one on August 10th, 1972. And we also have the debut on the podcast of Abby Arcane uh, slash Cable slash Holland. Uh, she has been uh, single, married, and married again uh, since her debut in Swamp Thing number three, December 7th, 1972. Uh, some production-wise for this uh, issue is uh, the production team is writer Alan Moore, famously Alan Moore, penciler Steve R. Bissett, inker John Tottleben, letterer John Costanza, and colorist Tatiana Wood. Uh, I wonder if John Costanza ever gets Seinfeld jokes. I'm sure he does all the time. I'm sure he does all the time, and I'm sure you know what? I'm sure he's sick of it. Gosh dang sick of it, I'm sure. So he probably hates that. I um, probably hates that I've I've mentioned it even. Uh, but let's get into the issue itself. As often is the case, let's start with the cover. Uh, it's a very, very cool cover, I think. First, let's talk about right at the top. There's something different about the Swamp Thing cover that we don't see in other DC titles uh, at the time. And it is a it is a phrase called sophisticated suspense, which is an indication to uh, the consumer that this title has some things that you wouldn't see in normal comic books. And that's because after issue 29 of this series, um, the Comics Code Authority stopped approving these issues. Uh, uh, issue number 29 got denied uh, because of its content. And so DC stopped caring, I guess, as much about getting the Comics Code Authority for this title. And this this title itself, number 35, does have the approval of the Comics Code Authority. But I, th if I remember what I read correctly, and I can't seem to find it now, I, I just spent a bit of time trying to find it, uh, but adding the sophisticated suspense must have uh, got the Comics Code Authority to be a little bit more lenient to be to on, on the subject matter. This issue itself isn't bad. There's, I mean, there's depictions of drinking and and stuff like that, but um, nothing nothing crazy. Uh, so the stuff you see in Swamp Thing is much darker and different than the stuff you see in the other mainstream uh, DC comics. Uh, but uh, now more about the cover itself. There is a um, background of, of newspaper print, and in in that is burned away uh, two eye holes with red uh, eyes uh, and a and a uh, a nose or a nose hole uh, and then teeth, and it looks a bit like a skeleton or a skull. And in front of it is a is Swamp Thing, and he has pink fluid coming out of his mouth. And he is, he is clutching at his throat, and there's a glass uh, next to him or a container next to him with some red or pink liquid coming out, and there's smoke coming off his body. Um, so it seems that this is not going to be a, a good issue for Swamp Thing. And I will say, Swamp Thing's not actually in it a whole lot. It's more about the, the I guess, not necessarily villain, but uh, antagonist of, of this two-part story. Uh, so let's start with this prologue. There's a, there's a full-page spread of Swamp Thing, and he's sitting, uh, kind of looking out uh, off, off the page, and there's this prologue. So I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to explain 
what it's talking about. While his lover sleeps, the swamp creature sits in the smoldering pink dusk and overlooks his territories. To the east, paper boys have wearied halfway through their rounds, dumping their remaining papers somewhere discreet and telling the news, the news agent he must have miscounted. The dead headlines dance upon a lukewarm wind, monochrome tumbleweed bowling through the failing light. He watches the sheets of newsprint flap like huge moths, crippled by their own weight. Hopping clumsily amongst the black trees, their pages are full of obsolete tragedies and discarded faces. All the carefully logged hysteria of a world he no longer belongs to. Behind him, his lover mumbles three dream-submerged syllables, but does not wake. And he is content. Beneath a darkening and volcanic sky, the swamp engulfs him. It is their own damp cosmos, and the troubles of the world beyond seem no more than the whispered conversations of distant madmen. That's very poetic, uh, I think, but uh, also very difficult to read uh, out loud. Um, but so what has happened here is we see Swamp Thing and behind him lays a sleeping Abbey Arcane. But it's not Abbey Arcane anymore. It's also not Abbey Cable. It's now Abbey Holland. This is the beginning. This is the issue after a multiple issue long storyline of uh, Abbey Cable at the time, who's married to Matthew Cable, um, who has... This weird godlike power, but only when he's drinking. And there's this whole thing with him getting possessed by Anton Arcane, who is the arch nemesis of Swamp Thing. And along those lines, or along the, the, in that storyline, Matthew Cable, who is the husband of Abby Arcane, uh, he goes into a coma, and then after getting possessed by uh Anton Arcane is defeated, and then he kind of lets himself go to uh, die. And then uh, Swamp Thing and Abby uh, get betrothed uh, in a swamp, uh, the green sort of very hippy-dippy kind of communion ritual because they're not, I mean, <laughs> I mean, Swamp Thing just has the uh, personality and memories of a dead guy. He doesn't have a social security number. He can't get married. He can't get a marriage license. And, and the way that worked was Abby sort of ate a part of Swamp Thing, and then they had like a very psychedelic uh, melding of the minds where she went into the green. And um, it's pretty cool. But now she is Abby Holland, um, taking the name of who Swamp Thing formerly kind of was a little bit. It's it's confusing. You should read it. Uh, it's a pretty good storyline. I mean, it's written by Alan Moore, so he, he's great. But so this is this is immediately after that. Uh, Swamp Thing doesn't really sleep, uh, uh, so he can be up basically all the time. But he's just sitting watching over the swamp while Abby sleeps, and it's, it's nice. Uh, but now let's get into the actual crux of the issue. It, it, it surrounds this sort of mysterious figure who is hanging out in the swamp with another uh, kind of disheveled-looking man. Uh, and there's the, the newspapers uh, that was spoken about in the prologue are real newspapers. That wasn't just poetic. Newspapers are fluttering through the wind, and they've kind of collected in the swamp, um, as detritus often does. 
So he's talking to this guy, and it's kind of, I could read it word for word, but it's it's very rambly, uh, and that would take up a lot of time. Uh, but it, it it's basically the story of this guy, who we learn is a sort of drifter, uh, an unhoused person uh, who was a person experiencing homelessness, also works, um, who was living in Pennsylvania where there was a strip mine. Uh, the strip mine caught fire and burned up all the coal. The entire seam burned up or exploded. And so the mine was shut down. Uh, and it's this place called Blossomville, and it is it is about this guy who is referred to only as Nukeface, and that is why the title of this issue and the issue after it are the Nukeface Papers, and this is part one. And throughout this story that Nukeface tells, there are headlines of the papers that he's burning, and they all are a, they're all about nuclear power and nuclear power plants. Now. I think that around this time, there was a big pushback against nuclear power, mostly because of nuclear waste. If you can get rid of nuclear waste in a safe way, there's no problem. But nuclear waste wasn't getting uh, disposed of properly, and sometimes still isn't. And so that's the problem. And especially in a book that focuses a lot on the environment, it's a very good... Uh, antithesis to all the the things that Swamp Thing holds dear, like the green and plant life and and life in general. Uh, nuclear waste and, and nuclear power are basically the exact opposites. They they all they do is destroy in in his mind. Although they can be quite useful. But back to Nukeface. He was living in Blossomville, Pennsylvania, when. Uh, the coal mine shut down, and a lot of people moved away. And these scientists or engineers, nuclear engineers, however you want to refer to them, started dumping their waste in the slag pits. And Nukeface, who was living in the kind of shut-down mine, uh, started drinking the waste, basically, because uh, he was thirsty. Um, didn't die somehow and now you can tell throughout this story like fruit starts to fall off the trees and things are going uh kind of dying around him so he kind of like radiates a nuclear energy that kills things around him and he's telling the story to this guy whose name is bob but he always refers to him as ed uh for whatever reason he calls everybody ed Uh, later on he meets swamp thing and calls him ed too um, I'm assuming because his mind has just been absolutely warped by this nuclear waste uh, that he is drinking. Uh, but he gives he gives Bob a drink of this stuff that he's drinking because uh, Bob thinks it's beer, you know, alcohol of some kind because they're just sitting around this fire that they're burning all these newspapers on um, drinking, you know. And Bob... Starts to die of radiation poisoning, obviously, because you can't drink nuclear waste and survive, other than, I guess, nuke face. He's a special case. But he, uh, nuke face, the reason he is in Louisiana instead of Pennsylvania is because it this uh, nuclear waste dumping was discovered, and they cemented over the 
the slag pit uh, with all the nuclear waste in it. And so they stopped the dumping. But Nuke Faced has grown, um, I don't know if you want to say addicted or uh, he's come to rely on this waste. Like that's what's keeping him alive and he needs it. And so he's come down to Louisiana because that's where they've moved their dumping activities. And uh, I'm sorry that I've, this is kind of a uh, not so smooth telling of, of the story. It's just the story doesn't really lend itself to being retold. Uh, the way Nuke Face talks is a little bit uh, not coherent. Um, so he, he tells this entire story to uh, Bob, who eventually, throughout the telling of the story, slowly uh, dies of nuclear uh, of radiation poisoning. His teeth fall out, and he eventually just dies s- sitting there. And Nukeface says, "Well, uh, I gotta go. I gotta go find where they where are they're dumping it because uh, uh, Daddy needs a taste." Basically, is what he he is saying. Um, there's also a kind of B plot of this married couple who work for the company that's uh, disposing of the nuclear waste. Um, They are in Pennsylvania, but they are moving down to Louisiana to do it. Uh, uh, He's some sort of scientist. He seems like a really good guy from what uh, we see of this scene. He doesn't doesn't like what happened at the the Blossomville site, and he he doesn't, um, doesn't like that, like, the, the, uh, as he called them, tramps and bums started vanishing, uh, dying presumably uh, from the from the waste, and so he wants to do good uh, down in Louisiana. Um, but uh, there 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 probably be more important in part two. Part one is really all set up. Um, so after after telling this story, uh, or in the middle of the story, we see Swamp Thing, and he is sleeping. I, I guess I did say that Swamp Thing doesn't sleep, but I guess I, I meant he doesn't need to sleep. So he did go to sleep. He fell asleep. And he is in this sort of desolate wasteland, which we know is Blossomville, but he doesn't know. He just sees it as this sort of uh, ravaged land with pools of uh, mysterious liquid sitting around and... There's no life anywhere, no plant life, no nothing. And he wakes up, um, and he's he, he's he's hoping that it was just a dream. And he looks around and he says, "It was a dream." The Katie Dids continue their monotonous accusals, and Abby is safe beside me. It was a dream. I can forget it and return to sleep. But he gets up and he says, "No, no, I can't." And so uh, Swamp Thing walks off. Um, Presumably to, to figure out why he had that dream and, and to stop it from happening or something. It's not it's not clear. Um, so having finished his story with uh, Bob, who has dead, for the la- latter half of of his story, Nuke Face is talking to a dead man and is having a conversation with this dead body. Um, and he's talking about the country's commitment to uh, nuclear power. Uh, and, and other non non fossil fuel forms of, of power like uh, wind turbines and, and uh, w- uh, water wheels, you know, hydroelectric dams, stuff like that. Um, he's very much in the the old uh, form of thinking about 
we need fossil fuels uh, because they're the only reliable form of energy. That kind of old, old uh, uh, thought process. Uh, but he finishes his story and, and walks away uh, from this fire and this dead body. Uh, we then cut to two workers, uh, two men, and they are unloading barrels. That's a danger, and they have radioactive symbols on them into the swamp itself. And they're talking about this, uh, that nerd Monroe, who is the, the Wallace Monroe, the, the, the guy in that couple who was moving down from Pennsylvania to Louisiana to, to deal with uh, dumping nuclear waste. Um, they call him a nerd, uh, and they call his uh, wife names as well, and they make fun of her name, which is Treasure. Um, but all the while, they're dumping these barrels into the swamp. Uh, I don't know why they think Monroe's a nerd. Uh, I'm assuming because he's, I'm assuming, trying to do things by the book uh, and wanting to, to dump things properly, even if it would cost them money, stuff like that. Um, so that's not great. But it's also not great that they're dumping this nuclear waste in the swamp because that's Swamp Thing's territory, and he doesn't like that. Um. So they finish dumping all of these barrels and they drive away and Swamp Thing walks up to the edge where it happens or where it happened and he is not, um, he's not uh, happy. Um, so nu- uh, Nuke Face uh, is walking through the swamp and, you know, fruits falling off the trees, you know, plants are dying all around him as he, as he walks, he's sniffing out the nuclear waste, um, and he finds it. He finds a spot where they dumped it. And he is saddened about it. They're like, they buried it under the mud. And so he's like, I gotta, I gotta dig it out. I gotta dig it up. And as he's reaching into the swamp to try to find the barrels, Swamp Thing walks up to him. And Swamp Thing is confused about him. And he sees his face. And, and Nuke Face's face is like burned and like the skin is falling off and his his half of his nose is gone uh i don't know how he survived drinking tainted water with nuclear waste in it but he has um uh, hopefully it'll be explained in part two but swamp thing is shocked uh, by this he's kind of taken aback and he asked nuke face what are you because i'm assuming swamp thing can feel the the nuclear energy radiating off of him and Nuke Face says, "Me? Well, I'm an American citizen." And he says, "Listen, Ed, you gotta. We gotta stick together. You gotta help me dig it up." And he touches Swamp Thing on the chest, and immediately Swamp Thing's entire like where the handprint is burns because it's. I mean, it's killing every cell, every living cell in his chest. And Swamp Thing is taken aback, and he screams uh, with some really good onomatopoeia sound effects um and he's he's taken aback and he falls over and nuke face doesn't know that he's done anything wrong he's like what's the matter ed uh one over the eight huh which i don't understand what that means he says let me help you up and he touches swamp thing you know he kind of grabs onto swamp thing and it again sizzles and, and burns swamp things uh being and he and Nukefake says, well, I, I can't. You're too heavy. Uh, but we'll both take a rest and our stre- get our strength back, and uh, then we'll dig up the stash. And meanwhile, Swamp Thing's just burning and burning and burning. And Nukeface takes a drink of uh, his last reserves of his precious nuclear waste. And he says, 
Um, he says, not much left now. And he looks over at Swamp Thing. He says, oh, hell, what, what are friends for? Say, Ed, I got something for you. Uh, over the teeth and round the gums. Look out, stomach. Here it comes. And he pours this stuff uh, onto Swamp Thing's mouth. Uh, and he says, there. There's glory for you, huh? Now you just sit back a while, Ed, and let me tell you about Pennsylvania. And the final image of Swamp Thing is he's laying on the ground, like, fall, like, the liquid is coming out of his mouth, and the parts where Nuke Face is touched are burning, and Swamp Thing's stomach has opened up, and it's it's burning away in there, the stuff that got down into his stomach. And uh, it doesn't seem to be going all that well for Swamp Thing uh, at the end of this issue. Um, but hopefully, hopefully he can get out of this situation in part two, uh, when we get to that, uh, you know, I mean, however long it'll take us to get there. Um, hopefully that made sense. Uh, it's kind of hard. The the kind of comic that Alan Moore and, and everyone created uh, in this issue is very hard to recap other than just telling the story from the stuff you learn from the issue instead of beat by beat because the way that Nukeface talks is incoherent and, and unconnected. Uh, in, in, a, in a broad storytelling sense, you kind of learn things here and there and kind of have to read between the lines of what people are saying. So hopefully that made sense to everybody. If not, I'm very, very sorry. Um, it, it's just really tough. But that is going to do it for this episode. Uh, I hope you all had fun uh, and enjoyed and learned a little bit of something. Uh, and I, I thank you for, for listening. Um, it means a lot to me. I, I really enjoy doing these crisis episodes uh, as well as the Golden Age. It's kind of a, a little bit more modern uh, and, and a little bit uh, nostalgic uh, sandwich uh, for the week. Uh, bookends for the week. We got a little bit of uh, you know Golden Age nostalgia in the, at the beginning. And then we got a little bit of more modern stuff at the end. It's a nice sandwich. Uh, be sure to follow the show on all of our socials, uh, Twitter, threads, Instagram, they're all going to be in the show notes because I can never remember what I actually picked for each of those. Uh, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify and wherever you want to do it because it it helps out the show and uh, getting the word out to people about all this cool stuff is cool uh, and I, I enjoy uh, doing it. So if more people can listen, that's great. Uh, but that's going to do it for us this time. I will talk to everyone again on Christmas morning, December 25th, uh, for the next episode of Issue by Issue, Golden Age. Uh, until then, I am your host, Nick Byers. As always, see you later.